2 Samuel 23, 1 to 7. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For, he, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Last words of David, we're told. First, let us understand this. These are not the literal last words of David. They're not intended to be. It's, these aren't the words of a man gasping out his last breaths on his dying bed. We see that in 1 Kings. What you're seeing is what kings often do, is it's his last will and testament. It's his last formal words that he writes down, which means what David wants at this point is not a confession. See, what we would like, because we're kind of sadistic, is we would love to see this guy say, I've been a horrible king, I've neglected my calling. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he offers what seems to be a whitewashing of his life. But is that what's happening? Instead, what he is doing is he is doing what most of us, I think, I've never been on my deathbed, obviously. And I would hope that most of us won't be there wanting to repent of everything as much as we'll be hoping to declare what we have found to be true over the course of our lives. Through all the misery, all the struggles, all the joy, here is what I know to be true. And this is what we pass on. I, I think, anyway, that seems to be what most kings and people do when they write out their last words. Now, I mentioned last week that these last four chapters of Samuel are not chronological. They're not part of the story. The writer seems to have grabbed stories and put them together. And the reason we say that is because, one, chronologically it doesn't make sense. But two, there's an intentional structure about it. And if you haven't seen it, that's okay. I'm going to show it to you now. I mentioned it last week. These chapters start and end the exact same way. So we'll put up on the screen. It's like a poem. They start and end with accounts of David acting as a king, doing kingly things. Then, after the first story and before the last, you have B, which are lists. And it's, a, it's these recountings of the mighty men's work, right? And then in the middle, there's back-to-back psalms, C. So this is called, you can write it down, a word, it's called a chiasm. It's a chiastic structure. And the idea is, he's organized this, intentional, whoever put this together originally. And the point is much like any other story it's a, that you're telling, it revolves around the center. And what is at the very center, what this whole section is trying to say is, here is a summary of David's life. Here's a report card of how David has been for the last two books that we've walked through. But without repeating the information to tell you the same story you've already heard, it presents you with snippets from his life to show you a snapshot of here's what you should come away from these books thinking about David. And at the very center of them is worship, which is Maybe a little strange, because there's not many accounts of David worshiping in the books of Samuel. There's lots in the Psalms. So it's difficult to read this and not think, come on, he's a scoundrel half the time, 
And yet here he is, especially in the first psalm, when he's talking, praising God for delivering him from the Philistines. It's difficult to, to not come away asking questions. Is this just a, a, a PR campaign to make him look better than he was? But what we have to see, and hopefully you've come to see, is David suffers from the same ailment we all suffer from. And it's found very clearly in Romans 7, when Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, I, I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Listen, we should come away from this being humbled and seeing David is like us. In fact, I think that's exactly why the author puts very idealistic psalms here at the end, is to show you the, the irony and to force you to see David wanted to be better. He wanted to be the ideal that you're going to see painted in this, this passage. But he couldn't. He struggled. And yet, despite his failings, he is consumed with confidence that he is okay, that it is well with his soul. Why? What confidence can he have, given the life that we know he's had in the chapters 9 to 20, uh, to 20, which are just a, a chronicle of misery that David has created? But this is what it is. He's done it. So we have to wrestle with it. What is he saying in his last will and testament? And what he is doing is he is trying to show us the profile of a king, what a king should be. He's leaving this words for, as a testimony for himself, but also for the future kings. And it's not just kings you're going to see. It's for all creatures made in the image of God. And we'll get there as to why that's like that. It's a profile. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I should do. And here's how I can do it. So if you want pithier words, it's an identity, a function, and a power. Here's who I am, my identity. Here's my function as a person made in the image of God. And then how can I actually do it since he fails and we all fail? So that's what we're going to cover. So... Let's jump into the first one, identity. Who am I? Who are we? It's very clear, psychologists, everybody knows, we, like it or not, see our lives as if they're a novel or a movie. We think of ourselves as if we're in a narrative and we're the stars of the story, right? We're all bit parts. Even now, I might be on the stage, but you think I am the bit part to your life, right? That's just the way we think as human beings, egotistical people. Now, how you live your life depends very much on which character you think you are, what sort of a character. So let's, let's use a few examples. If you think that, uh, you probably don't think directly, but let's imagine you're a guy like this, Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov, that's, it's hard to see, but he is the protagonist in the book called Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. He is a guy who's convinced that certain generations of people have great men and women in them, Napoleon, Jesus, Hitler, he was said, these are great meaning grand, okay, not morally great. But those, there's certain peoples in every generation that are permitted to go above and beyond the moral right. They can break the law because it's their job to push humanity and drag humanity forward by science, by war, by any means. Raskolnikov is a poor, struggling student in St. Petersburg, and he thinks, that's me. I'm above the law. And as a result, he kills someone and is punished for it, crime and punishment. So if you think you're above the law, that's the, that will determine how you live your life. Let's imagine you're another character from a, one of the best movies, arguably, ever made, Citizen Kane. You're Charles Foster Kane. I love the movie. I know it's old. I love it. Charles Foster Kane is a man who made himself. Rags to riches story. 
And many people, especially if you were an immigrant to this country, my parents thought that way, right? They came with nothing, $10 in my pocket. Um, now I own a house, that's $4 million. And so if you think that you're a rags to riches story, then it's going to fit, you're going to become a proud person, generally. Because you're going to really feel, I have done this. If you're unemployed, it's because you're not trying. There's jobs, go get a job. You see, the pride will come in because of who you are in your story determines how you live. Or if you're Willie Loman, the character who's the main star of Death of a Salesman. This is a guy who can't get anything right in his life. He's a guy who's always a victim. Never, I never get the breaks, you know? Have you ever been anybody in that room who feels like life just keeps handing you lemons? Time and again. And if that's who you think you are in your story, then that's going to make you somebody who's very... It's difficult to hold accountable because you're going to think someone else is always responsible. And there's thousands of characters you could be. These are just three. But we all think of ourselves in this way. So the question is, who does David think he is? Because the very first verse we read, David offers four descriptions of himself that tell you who David thinks he is near the end of his reign. And they're very important for us to understand. So the first thing he says, remarkably, is he starts by saying he's the son of Jesse. That's a, that's a weird one, isn't it? He doesn't start by saying, I'm the king of Israel, but I'm the son of Jesse which indicates right away that theologically, David is thinking rightly. He knows, I started as something, but God made me something more. Because what is he as a son of Jesse? Just for the record, Jesse was a middle-class farmer with eight sons. David was the last of the eight. We're not talking David was born into a great family here. And what David is saying, I was nothing. And the very next one is, but I was raised up, right? I was the man who was raised on high. And what he is then saying is his identity as a person who was then dragged from his position by God into something. And this moves into the very next one, actually, when he says he's anointed. Because it means he is not a product of accidental political forces. He wasn't just becoming king because it was the way the, the political uh, climate worked out. He was put there specifically. Anointed means to be set apart. There was a calling on his life, and it wasn't his own doing. And that's... That's quite important because most kings wouldn't have thought of that in the ancient world. He knew he, served, he was king purely by the decree of God. That's big reformed words for the word. God made him it. God kept him there by his power and as, for a purpose, to be a gift to David and to, to Israel. There was a reason he was there, and he understood this. But because he knows he is lifted to that position, David, in his best mind anyway, knows he can't be any of those other characters we talked about. He knows if he is put in that position as king, just as we are as children of God, if we are given this lofty place because of God, you can't be Raskolnikov. You can't think you're above the law because you're accountable to God, who says you must submit to the law. You can't be, um, who was my second one? I don't even remember who I said. Oh, uh, Charles Foster Kane, this rags to riches. You're not a self-made man. It's not your identity. It can't be if there's an, a, a sovereign God. So stop making yourself feel good and, tell, and making other people feel small about how you worked hard for what you got. No, you didn't. You worked hard because you were given that work ethic by God. You were put into a, a, a white family, probably in Canada, with resources in a place where education is available. Let's just be honest. God favored us. He, he, he's lifted us to this role. But we also can't be Willie Loman and feel like victims. Because if God is sovereign, everything you're going through, God has said, okay, let them go through it. Everything. doesn't matter how miserable it is. God has allowed it to happen. 
So you see, the character of David starts to shift. And if this isn't a creature who's going to look very different than other people in his world, then I don't know what is. And he goes on. He says he's the anointed, uh, anointed of the God of Jacob. Why does he choose to say the God of Jacob? Why doesn't he say the God of Abraham or God or the Lord, covenant name, Yahweh? Why does he choose the God of Jacob? Well, I think this is David showing he knows his problems because Jacob was a conniver. Remember, Jacob has his name changed. There's a transformation. Jacob, you're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. God, this God of Jacob is symbolically the God of transformation. And David, as a scoundrel that he is, knows he needs a God of transformation, as we all do. So it's not by accident, I think, that he says he's the anointed. And then this last part is, there's so much that can be said when he says he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. Just for the record, the Hebrew is quite ambiguous here. It may say a lot of different sorts of things, but that's pretty good. What literally it says is he is the sweet song of Israel, that he himself is the song of Israel, which for me, it's like that's a lot to think about because what it means if that's the case, there's two ways. If you see it like this, it means he sees his identity as being a worshiper. I'm here to worship and to model worship for all those around me, which that's what Christians do. But if he sees it as if, if it was meant to be, he is this, he himself, his life is the sweet song of Israel, then that means God is holding out David's life as something as sweet and beautiful, not because of David, but because you and I now see how God has worked through a miserable guy, through a sinner, to bring about such wonderful things. And if that's the case, that is a sweet song, and it makes the author God, not David. So take from that what you will. Either way, what you're seeing is David sees his identity as one part man and three part God, right? Three descriptions of God's involvement. That's a pretty interesting ratio because we don't see it that way oftentimes. So his identity is rooted very much in God, and it means ultimately you are not your own. This is not matter denying. It doesn't say you're all spirit. There's no matter. No, it's instead matter affirming. This identity that David is showing us here, that he is God created, God accountable, God directed, nothing else directs his steps, that is not reality denying. It's reality affirming. Like it or not, that's who we all are meant to be. And if you don't accept this, this view of identity and you start to create your own identity or you let your politics identify you or your career identify you or your family, you begin to stray from this. And who is in a better spot to tell us that than David, who has strayed so incredibly? So his identity. Who am I? He's a child of God. But which leads us naturally to if that's who we are, what is the function? What are we to do with this? And it's so much to say. Verse 4. Verse 4, look at the metaphors here. I was talking to an Old Testament prophet this week because I thought maybe I was crazy and seeing something that I hadn't heard, but he affirmed that it's not, not completely crazy. So, but think about this. In this verse, is it, do I have it up there? I don't know if I do. Probably not. Anyway, verse 4, if you look at the, at the images, David is now describing, this is what a just king looks like. This is how they behave. And he describes it, and he describes the role of a king using very interesting language. So he says that this king is like a dawn, the dawn of the sun, the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that causes grass to spring up from the earth, and that kings are meant to be thorn clearers. So that's verse 5 and 6. That when the thorns come up, you've got to take it apart. He even says, you know, you can't use your hands because they're thorns. You've got to use something steel or something wood to move the thorns and burn them. 
That language right away, if I just say to you, what comes to mind as a Christian, biblically, when I say things like mourning, grass springing up from the rain, cloudless skies, thorns, where do you want to go in the Bible from there? Come on, somebody tell me. I can't hear it. I'm going to pretend like I heard you. Genesis. Genesis 1 to 3, creation. And it's not accidental. What David is saying is he is saying his job as a king is rooted in creation. Let me explain why that is. When God creates humanity, he says, uh, well, you know, it's in Genesis 1.26. I'll use the NIV because it captures it a little better here, just so you're aware it's not maybe a little different. But it says, let me read it from mine here. Uh, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. See? The image of God stamped on humanity, is given so that you can then carry out the mandate to rule the world. So, humanity is given the royal image, and with it, they share a royal purpose. To rule, in some way. David understands that his kingship is rooted in this original mandate to humanity in Genesis 1-3. to It's a little different. If we had time, we could walk through uh, king, kingship theology, which we, could, we don't have time. But it goes right through until they develop a king, and they, they grant one in, in 1 Samuel. So David knows his role is rooted in that, and that automatically links not just David, but you and I into this. That we then have to say his role, though different because he's a king, is actually not much different than us. We bear the image of God and therefore have the mandate to rule, the expectation to rule, and the ability to rule. But what does that look like? Because we're not told that we can just rule any way we want. What comes through in Genesis 1, and if you were in my uh, faith and work classes, you would have heard this, what comes through is you are to rule the way God rules. So when you see in Genesis 1 to 3, God creating the universe, he's not just making it because it's pretty. He is intentionally making a place where he can dwell with his people, a place that is hospitable to not just their survival, but that will allow them to worship and flourish. We then are sent out as little images of God into the world to carry on that work, to cultivate and subdue the world, and to bring flourishing into any spot we go. It doesn't matter if you're a mechanic, a barista, a politician, or a pastor, or whatever you are, a dad, a stay-at-home mom, doesn't matter. Your job is then to go wherever you are, identify where sin is decaying things, arrest the decay and reverse it if possible, and create an atmosphere where worship is allowed and permitted. That's a perfect world. Now, David is understanding that is the role of the king. This is why he says they're refreshing. Look at the language he uses, that it's this loveliness, you know. Um, a, king, a king is an agent of loveliness, refreshment, beauty, joy, fertility, growth, all of this, but not just that. When he mentions the thorns, he puts on this other obligation we have, which is why we struggle to be united sometimes, which is Adam and Eve were intended to thrust the serpents out of the garden. When a serpent comes, and the right response from Adam and Eve would have been, get away from me, right? To drive the serpents out of the garden. That's the goal of, of the king and the kings and queens of creation. That's our job. And David sees that part of his role is to do this. And so... Start, is that, are you, are you, am I, everybody's following? It's good? Okay, good. I know it's sometimes more lecture than it is a sermon at times. But this is what where David understands his role was supposed to have been. Remember, David is not a fool, 
And some people have, have said, well, but isn't Carl, isn't, he, isn't the writer just trying to make David look good because he's writing? Probably the book of Samuel was compiled, maybe, during David's reign. So isn't he trying to keep David happy? If he is, he's done a terrible job <laughs> up until this point. He seems to have gone to great pains to show David is not a perfect king. So what he's doing now is showing us the ideal. This is what we are called to do. And it, all, it should make it difficult, because the moment we read it, there's a quote I found from a guy, he's a John Perrin, he's a pastor, but he's also a, um, he's finishing his PhD in New Testament. I, I don't know if he's done now. He's in the UK. And here's what he says. As we begin to reflect on what God's offer of kingship to humanity entails, however, we are simultaneously stifled by an extreme humility as the limitless potential for redemptive work is matched up by the unconstrained possibility for neglect, violence, and abuse that could and has taken place by so-called kings in all ways, shapes, and forms. What he's saying is, it's good that we have this great idea, this great outline of who we should be as Christians. But as we reflect on it, it seems like a daunting task. There's a lot of weeds to clear. And it's so daunting, we all, you almost you see so much of what you're supposed to do that it is almost matched in our hearts and in our heads by the, the, by the number of possibilities that we can just neglect it and watch another Netflix series. It's so easy, and this is why he, Perrin is saying it's daunting. This incredible call, and, then yet, and yet how willingly we surrender that call. So this should lead us, as Perrin is saying, to humility. When we read of David, every time, and I've said this to you before, every time you read scripture and you're tempted to say, idiot, remember he's talking about you. Remember, it's tempting to say disciples, they're dumb, they don't get it. David, if I was king, I'd be better. Every time you feel that way, you should know the, the writer of, of Samuel saying, gotcha, that's the point. So we should be struck with humility, but there's also a problem. Here we'll move to the last point. Because if it's not possible, is God just sadistic? Is he just giving us a, a, a mandate that we can't possibly follow? Is he calling for unity and restoration that we just can't do? If that's the case, if we can't do what he has called us to, he's not a good God. I wouldn't be a good boss if I asked my staff to do something they were, it was, that was impossible to do. I'd be a terrible boss. So if that's the case, we should either go find another religion or have some serious questions. But fortunately, we don't need to because there's answers right here in this passage. So... Are we being mocked? So David is very confident, isn't he? It's amazing. He is like you can't dampen this guy. Even when he repents, he seems to come back really thinking he, God loves him. Like he's convinced God loves him, even though our evidence would say, Carl, you should bring him up on discipline and send him out of the church. <laughs> if David attended this church, you guys would string him up. You totally would. And I'd probably be there with you. And yet David comes out, even in this passage, look what he says. Um, For does not my house stand so, meaning in righteousness, with God? For he, will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? It's like, man, that's pretty confident. What is it in David that allows him to, to not be completely destroyed and humbled and made to feel this big by his failings? Because there's a lot of them. But what also is somehow keeping him, and if you read the Psalms, you see this, from becoming so puffed up at being the most successful king Israel ever had and arguably ever did. What keeps him there? And the answer is actually in between those three dots there, because I jumped over the middle. Because what he says in the middle is this. 
for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. So, David realizes something very important here. He realizes that covenant is the, only, is the key to being who God has called you to be. Okay? Now, let me explain this, but let me explain what a covenant is and what a contract is first. Because most people will think about contract or covenants as contracts today. It's the closest we have, generally. Maybe not. Maybe marriage as a Christian. In the secular world, marriage is a contract. In the church, it should be a covenant. But a contract, one of the unique features of it is you initiate it and you guarantee it. If I get a job employment from Starbucks and job, they're going to give me a job, there's a, an agreement here. They will pay me, but I'm expected to work a certain amount of hours, be productive, to have a certain code of conduct, a dress code, what have you. Therefore, the contract is dependent upon my ability to fulfill it. That's a contract. Think of, your, think of anything. Jobs, a cell phone, I have to pay the bill. You know, A contract is dependent on me. But as a result, if you see, and many people do, if people see Christianity as a contract, then they're going to hate Christianity eventually. They'll be frustrated and filled with anxiety. Because then you'll always be thinking, if Christianity is something that I am responsible for, then have I done enough? Have I picketed enough? And have I been vaccinated enough? Have I put up enough resistance? Have I given enough? Have I tithed enough? Have I served enough? So you'll be anxious. And eventually what happens, if you're in anxiety long enough, you come to hate the person making you anxious. And you think it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So if you see Christianity as a contract, first, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Biblically, it's not a contract. But it's understandable. If you feel weighed down by Christianity and by the church, it's either because the church or because you are seeing Christianity as a contract. Covenant, however, in, in the Bible, specifically the unconditional covenants of the, of the covenant with David and then the new covenant, those covenants specifically are entirely initiated and guaranteed by God, which is what he says, that ordered in all things and secure. And look who it is. He has made with me. It never says, I made a covenant in this direction, not with the big covenants. And the reason is God initiates them and God guarantees them. And that's important because if God initiates it, then that means that you don't have to be concerned that your performance will get you more from God or will lose something that God has already given you because it's not about you. It never was. If a covenant is not unconditional in this way, it's going to be slavery to you. A marriage will be like a, like a hell to you. If you feel like you have to constantly appease them, and if you stop giving enough, they'll stop giving it back to you. That's a consumer relationship, right? It's not a covenant. That's, a, that's what I do at Starbucks. I like Starbucks, but if I find a place with better coffee and it's cheaper, well, it's not hard to find cheaper, but... <laughs> But, but if I find a place that satisfies me better, I leave because that's a consumer relationship. It's based on a product, my loyalty in exchange for the product. And that's if we make relationships that and churches that, you're going to leave at the drop of a hat when I say the wrong thing or we take the wrong stand. But if it's a covenant, if it's a covenant that David understands, he realizes he can't fail his way out of the covenant. He can't, which allows him to all at once be very bold because he knows if I screw up, I'll be forgiven because it was never given to me because I didn't screw up, right? So he can be bold. And then when he sins, he can repent and move on quickly. And some Christians don't like that. They don't like it when you get over sin too quickly because they think you should suffer a little more, right? I can't believe it. They got divorced. They got this. He did that. She did that. And they're already, they're already okay? Oh, not enough penance for me. 
a few more years of purgatory. That's what I want. And, but this is the idea. And David can re- recoup very quickly because he can repent of the sin, which is needed, but then quickly move on and say, I, I don't need to be saddled by it. He can move on quickly. So when David looks back at a life where he has made a mess of many parts of it, he doesn't need to confess to you in his last words. He doesn't have to because it doesn't really matter what you think. What he's trying to tell you is, look to God and this everlasting covenant. So, now think about this way. How were covenants physically made? They were physically made originally in stone. When Moses is told in Exodus 34.10 by God to get the Ten Commandments, the stones for him, he says, go and hew them out of the, out of the, uh, the mountain. And then God, when he comes to them in, in, chapter, in verse 10, he says, I will make with you a covenant. But the word make isn't the word make. It's the word carve, cut, katar. Katar is what it is in Hebrew. And it means to cut. And the idea is that he takes this stone and he carves the promises into the stone because well, what they had, but also symbolically, have you ever noticed people say things like, well, we could go this day or that day, but it's not carved in stone. Remember? It's because what is carved in stone is unchangeable. And so God comes, and here's remarkable. He comes and he says, my promises are carved in stone. But then in Isaiah 43, Psalm 51, have you noticed? You all know it. If you're a Christian, and if you don't, that's okay. Um, David continually asks, Isaiah says it, and God says it. He says, I will blot out your transgressions. Remember that? Blot. In the ancient world, ink didn't have acid in it. So as a result, it didn't bite into the papyrus. So it wouldn't get permanent. It's not permanent marker. It's like a washable. Um, so what would happen is if, there was a, if you had a debt you owed, you'd get a wet cloth and you'd blot out and write the, write the new mountain, right? And when God says, I will blot it out, isn't it interesting that he writes his promises in stone, but your sin in removable ink? It's not by accident that he doesn't take a stone and say, let me write down David's Bathsheba problem here. We do that because we put it on the internet and it never goes away. Right? We carve it in, in, in digital stone. God, amazingly, doesn't do that. What he has carved in stone is his promise in Christ. When we sing, there's that, I don't even know if it's an, I'm sorry, I don't even know if it's an old hymn, but I feel like I've sung it my whole life. When it's on Christ the solid rock. Remember that? His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he is then all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Listen, I understand the lyrics mean that he is like a refuge, you know, amidst the ocean, he's the big rock. But he is also the one into whom God has carved his promises to you. They're not going anywhere. And the reason he did that was because all the way back at so many things. But in Isaiah 48, he says, another thing, if you're a Christian, you've heard it. He says, I have carved your names on the palms of my hands. Remember that? In the ancient world, sometimes you would carve your name into your slave's forehead because if they ran away, they'd know he belongs to Titus or whoever you are. It would be unheard of to have a slave's name carved into the owner. And in this case, it's not exactly what happened either because you're not a slave. You're children. And he is so committed to you that he has carved the name of the wayward people into the hands of the master and then into the body of the son. And when you see that... When you see that he has gone that far, you think he's going to stop approving of me. He's going to let me go because I don't, I'm not on the right side of a convoy debate. He didn't abandon you on the cross. He's not about to now. 
He didn't. He died to bring us together. And when we understand this, we, of course, the first thing we do is repent because you realize how well you've been loved and how little you deserve it. And then once you accept Christ, you can be what David is trying to make idealistic here. It's idealistic. It's hard. We're going to fail. But when you fail, you have this great high priest who says, I know you failed. That's why I came and did it for you. I did it right. And this is meant to be our identity entirely. Everything is dependent only on our relationship with Christ. And he is the only guarantor, not you, not how you behave. This is our identity. Our identity is we are Christians. What we do is God's work in the world. And we have that's hard work, right? We have to sit and talk about that. What does that mean? We're in this very difficult time. Or what does it mean? Do we protest? Do we not? Is the science behind it or not? Stop following the red herrings. Christ alone. It's important to have these conversations. We must, and we'll create more opportunities for these conversations. But Christ alone, that's what we follow. And we do it because, and we can be bold. You don't need to, you don't need to be on either side of this debate if you don't want. Christ is not either, necessarily. It's a difficult conversation, but Christ is who we hold to, not to pick an outlet. It's not what we do. It's because of Christ. It's wonderful. This is actually really incredible news. You don't need to be out there screaming and hollering in either direction. You can be. I think there's room for that. Remember, the zealot. Let the zealot come. The identity is rooted in Christ first and foremost because he bought you with a price.